Hi, my name is Cameron Kozan, and this is the Logger Podcast, where we interview hardware leaders on their personal journeys and their career-defining hardware projects. But before we jump in, if you are a hardware team or if writing firmware is part of your job, then head over to LoggerData, L-A-G-E-R-D-A-T-A.com, and we will both literally and figuratively change your life for the better. That's L-A-G-E-R-D-A-T-A.com. On today's episode, we talk with Benson Tsai, the CEO and co-founder of one of my favorite stealth startups. Before that, he was putting batteries on space shuttles at SpaceX, and that's what we get to talk all about. If you like batteries or space shuttles, or you feel that Picard references are on brand in a conversation about SpaceX, this is your episode. Okay, welcome to the Logger Podcast. I'm here today with Benson Tsai, who is a He's the CEO of a stealth startup. That's for another time. That's going to be a good follow-up conversation. Um, but he also uh, was a senior battery engineer um, at, at uh, SpaceX and got to celebrate this year's launch. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about his journey to getting there. Benson, thanks for being here. Welcome. Hey, Cameron. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited to, to be on this podcast and am excited to talk about my life. Nice. This is your life, Benson. So I'm going to go back maybe further than you would like, but I always like to hear the the story that, that gets people sure. where they are. And um, so 2008, you just got a graduate uh, degree in chemical engineering and you decide after spending that extra money to become a graduate student and be a master's to just then go start your own company. So, you know, what brought that about? What did the company do? Just kind of take us back there. Yeah, I'll start maybe just a little bit before that. I was getting my master's in chemical engineering from the University of Minnesota and I was actually on a PhD track, really wanting to get a PhD so that I could become a professor. But having grown up in you know Southern California, living in Minnesota was was fairly <laughs> difficult uh, from a, a thermal perspective. And so when the opportunity arose, and one of my friends was starting a company, I couldn't I couldn't turn that down, and I was pretty excited to to kind of drop everything and move from Minnesota to. California, and I moved to the Bay Area, where I uh, jumped into the startup game, really not knowing what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people, when they like make their first startup or something like that, I think that there's like words like MVP, they go to take a small bite out of something. Yeah. My memory is that maybe that's not what you did. Could you tell us a little bit what, what Motive did? Yeah. I think in 2008, the uh, uh, the startup ecosystem wasn't as well documented or, or the, the resources out there weren't freely available yeah. uh, as much as they are today. And so when when we went out there and started our own company, what my co-founder, Jim Castellas, was at Stanford and was just plugging into the startup ecosystem there. And he was the one who transferred knowledge over to us. But our initial plan was to electrify trucks and buses in the fleet industry. We wanted to build a company with exciting technology. And at the time, Tesla was just getting off the ground. Uh, there was an electric motorcycle company. And so we looked at electric motors and batteries and thought the biggest issues that people were having with, with these new vehicles, people were very nervous about how far they could drive. And they were also very nervous about where you would charge all of these electric cars. And we took a look at the technology and looked at the rest of the vehicle space and realized fleet vehicles made a lot of sense 
because they drive the same route every day. So we're talking, you know, UPS trucks or um, bakery trucks. And once you know they drive the same route every day and they go home to a depot, you kind of solve the two, you know, the low hanging fruit of the uh, electric vehicle industry of range anxiety and infrastructure questions. And so we thought that was a good bet. And so we got into that, but, but it was a very, very, uh, tumultuous journey. I would yeah. say. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And a team of how big? Uh, uh, early on, it was like three or four of us, um, the, the ebbs and flows early days, startups, you know, there were up to, you know, seven or eight, but we were all post-college kids and didn't really know what commitment meant to a company or, or, you know, better opportunities come along. And so it was a, it was a small team of people, but ultimately it ended up being three three of us uh, with a part-time guy from Stanford. Setting out to create an electric truck. I, I just feel like you're downplaying how big of an ambition that is. I think if I go back to 2008, I think I was making a to-do list app that was like, you can <laughs> add and edit a to-do, which is like a very manageable workload. And then you're like, yeah, Tesla's getting started. And the three of us, I just dropped out of my PhD to create like, you know, an electric truck. Um, and so, you know, does that, am I, am I like reflecting the scale of the ambition correctly? I mean, are you just like, you know, I feel like you're downplaying how big it was just because <laughs> maybe you were naive to how hard it was back then. I, I, uh, we were honestly just naive to how, how much capital would be required. And we were wondering why people were saying, you know, investors were saying no to us, but mm. it was a learning experience. And I think the one thing that I learned from school was never to be afraid of incredibly hard things. And so even in the face of something that may have seemed impossible from the outside, it was fun to just hustle and fight yeah. for something that we believed in. And this was in the early days of the clean tech era. That's a pretty nice thing to take away from school. Yeah. Never be afraid of hard challenges. Like, I don't think schools gave me something that useful. Uh, that would you say that's that University of Minnesota that we got to give credit for that? No, no, that's actually Harvey Mudd College. Uh, Harvey undergrad. Mudd, all right. You know, that school really just kind of throws everything at you and then and then you sink or swim. And and, and it was a place where I think masochists thrive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. In school, I think I, I learned that uh, or I got into math and science because it was really supposed to be the hardest thing you could do at school. Yeah. yeah. But when I ended up trying to start a company with my friends, you know, I realized actually math and science is easy. There are laws of physics that you abide by and everything behaves very, very predictably. Hmm. And the shift in mindset that I had, I realized that the business world is so much more complex and difficult to understand because it's not as predictable. Yeah. And that excited me. I was like, oh, wow, actually, math and science, they're not the hard things. It's all of the things around building a business around this technology. Those were the challenges that I started to enjoy. And did that come up right away at Motive or was that something that like grew over time? Like you kind of saw that right away? It was within the first year, I think, cool. of of how difficult uh, building a company actually is. And it's not just you design a thing and then the thing pops out and does what you need. There's so many other factors. There are emotions that, that you can't predict during yeah. conversations. And so I think this attitude of jumping into things I don't understand keeps me on a learning curve. Well, I want to come back at the end of like your leadership style. So I'm going to plant that seed with you now. Sure. Um, but you left me with thinking a little bit of uh, grass is greener stuff where there are certain aspects of that business side that I'm very comfortable with, 
Whereas like if, even though the laws of physics are more concrete, I would be like drowning. Whereas like there's some seeming randomness in some of the business and emotional stuff that like you then can also pattern match, but it's more Mm. difficult to learn because there's not any, any business advice that you get is sort of made up on the spot by that person. So it's very hard other than your own experience to tease out what's actually true and what's not. Right. So you did this for three years. Uh, people were saying no to you on your fundraising. You underestimated the challenge, but it didn't seem like that phased you all. You were in a pretty good mood about it. Um, did it end with an acquisition? Is that how you jumped no, to Lucid? No, actually, my co-founder, Jim Castles really, really kept us together. We had grown to like 11 or 12 by then. But um, what really saved that company was the California government. They were really excited to invest money into new new technology. It was the California Energy Commission that had that was offering some government grants to support early stage startups and, and develop technology that would make California a greener place. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. I ended up uh, getting the chance to basically do the same thing in China. And uh, I departed Motive uh, early on, but the, the, the company is still around today. Oh, and uh, fantastic. Yeah, they just raised $60 million from Winnebago last year and did another round. That's really cool. And and all of the credit goes to my co-founder, who was the CEO for 10 Jim. years, yeah. uh, Jim. And and we just brought in a new CEO this year. Uh, so I, I I have high hopes for that company. And it's, it's, it's really exciting to have been a part of a startup that is still around today, which, yeah. which uh, is rare, right? Extremely rare. So how did this China opportunity show up? And then did you go move to China? Basically, uh, the, the company is now called Lucid Motors, and they have this, you know, luxury sedan that's trying to compete with Tesla. And Elon even tweeted when they announced the price, when Lucid announced the price for their car, Elon tweeted that they were going to drop the price of the Model S to, to you know, the same price or a, or a little bit nice. lower. But, but Lucid at the time was called Ativa, and it was founded by um, Bernie Tse, who was in charge of the battery group over at Tesla early days. Hmm. but decided he wanted to make uh, electric vehicles in China. And in China, when the government mandates something, things happen, right? Yeah. So, so they were uh, making a big push for electric vehicles and electric buses and trucks. And given my background in electric trucks and the fact that I spoke Mandarin, I spoke Taiwanese, I spoke English, it was a pretty exciting opportunity to be able to work in Shanghai. Ativa slash Lucid had offices in Shanghai and Taipei and the Bay Area. And so it was an opportunity for me to utilize my language skills and also utilize my engineering background. And I felt that uh, we can make a lot more vehicles in China faster and make, make a big difference yeah. for the environment. I joined in, in uh, Lucid early days and it was a lot of fun. I was doing mostly engineering work, really making sure that I could use the degree that I got uh, yeah. in engineering. Yeah, it was it was an opportunity to travel a lot and live out of a suitcase, which which I think most people would want being early on in their career. Yeah. Do you have any fun? Um, I mean, everybody does. Who I talk to from the hard world has like some. So if you don't, it's no stress. But uh, everybody <laughs> has like fun, um, you know, manufacturing in China stories. Like, do you have any that, uh, uh, you know, pertain to maybe even if there's like a, a big mandate pushing your thing versus like some random startup from from san francisco it was it was different so so actually um the lucid had an engineering office in taipei that i worked whenever i was in asia i actually worked out of taiwan and that was really convenient because my family is originally from taiwan my parents are from taiwan and so 
I was able to live in a city where I didn't feel like I was a stranger. I, I spoke all of the languages. That's amazing. Uh, and I had family around, right? Oh, awesome. Um, and so, so that was really interesting just to see a different work culture. I remember one of my first days in the Taiwan office and we had just eaten lunch and someone turns off the lights in the office at one o'clock and I'm looking around <laughs> and, and people start pulling out pillows. Oh, hell yeah. And, and I, I like talked to my co I'm like, hey, what's going on? They're like, it's nap time. And I was like, I love this place. <laughs> sounds so good. Uh, yeah. Oh. And it was just so interesting. Like, you know, nap time built into the culture, seeing grown adults taking little naps. I'm all about this. And yeah. over time, I would, sometimes I would take naps, but I'm not really used to that. So most mm -hmm. of the time, I would just work at my desk in the darkness. And I really enjoyed it because it reminded me of study hall period where like, yeah, no one could bother you. No one was allowed to talk. And I would be extra productive in that half hour period. So that was pretty unique uh, culturally, like we're culture wise. I spent a bunch of time in uh, Korea and there are a bunch of different business rules that I had to learn about, like both the social and the business side when you're doing like professional social things. Were there any other things like that that you discovered? Well, well, there's one interesting thing in that the dialect or or the the accent that I have, or my Taiwanese, not my Mandarin Chinese, but my Taiwanese, uh, was very colloquial and like familial. It was not really professional. Sure. And so I think I warmed up to people quickly because I would be using language that was not necessarily appropriate for the workplace. But yeah. But it it worked out for me. Um, did you realize that you were doing that, or did you sort of like later on piece that together? They just kind of told me. My coworkers yeah. would be like, hey, you know, your the words that you use are a little more friendly. Yeah. <laughs> I think. You got like a you're like the laid back surfer of the office. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. and it's neat. I guess there must be something about that like I could imagine some cultures where doing that could be really bad news for you. Like it'd be mm -hmm. seen as like a disrespectful thing. But I guess like the a culture that would espouse snap time is one that <laughs> would give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So you were there three years. How much of that time did you spend in, in Taipei? I think I was traveling maybe every month or every other month. Wow. Uh, and I would I would stay there for two, two, three week stints. I was one of the few people in the company that actually spoke Mandarin, spoke Taiwanese and spoke English. Yeah. And so I ended up being sort of the bridge of information for a lot of the offices. And uh, when I was in California, working out of the California office, I would work two shifts because yeah. of the time zones. Yeah. So I would work the American shift. And then in the evening, my Skype or phone would light up. And then I would be chatting with my coworkers in, in Taiwan and really building that rapport. Yeah. I spoke to Tyler Mincy about the making of the iPhone earlier in the series. And he, um, he was saying it's kind of cool to be in, in the US and China because essentially there's a full-time working shift and then a handoff call and then a full-time working shift. You come back and some stuff is done. But I think it's pretty interesting if you're the bridge, you're just like, oh, now I have two shifts. I do both of these things. Yeah, I'm sure you must have gotten uh, access to a lot more information and a deeper understanding of what was going on by having that role. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely more systems knowledge than I really needed. I was hired on as a thermal mechanical engineer and mostly designing things. But yeah, it, I mean, it was also a smallish company and everybody knew everybody. So so everybody gets to dip their toes in, in every little pool and, and try different things. And so for me, it was easy for me to transition, you know, Yeah. given that I that I could understand everybody. 
Maybe we should have talked about this early, early days, but uh, my parents were immigrant parents and they moved to the United States and they actually opened a fish and chips uh, yeah. in Los Angeles. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and and uh, I talked to my mom about that era and I asked her how she felt comfortable serving fish and chips and not like Chinese food. Yeah. And she was like, I just didn't want to cook Chinese food. But also I had a secret uh, ingredient in in our in our batter and i was like what was it and she's like msg it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing um but oh uh, and so, so okay so immigrant parents restaurant industry kind of started there uh but then my mom opened a after school chinese program where uh we would send buses to pick up kids at school and bring them to our tutoring center where we would teach them english math and chinese wow. while the parents this was this was during the rise of the dual income family yeah. ecosystem and so parents didn't know what to do with their kids after school. Sure. That's kind of where I learned my Mandarin. I, I figured that if my mom was making a living teaching Chinese to other people's kids, I better be a kid that knows Chinese. Sure. Otherwise, no one's going to pay my mom and I will be out on the street homeless. And that was like the, <laughs> weird, the weird logic. Yeah. I think that's pretty <laughs> respectful, Benson. I don't know that all kids would be that bought into helping their folks out. And it sounds like you speak your languages like, like okay, I can kind of speak Spanish because I grew up in San Diego next mm-hmm. to Tijuana and, and a lot of uh, kids would commute across the border every day to go to school. Right. Um, but I think the way I speak Spanish and the way, uh, you know, you speak Mandarin are not the same ballpark. I feel like you're bringing <laughs> your, if you, if you can go into business doing it, then I think you're in a totally different place. So I would say it was a challenge. You know, when you learn a, a language, you don't necessarily learn the engineering version or the science version of that language, right? Yeah, yeah. So there was there was an interesting period where I was writing down new words that I would learn. Mm. Like I didn't know the Chinese word for aluminum or tin or, you know, iron. And so it, it's kind of the same in English. Like when you start talking about engineering, it's almost its own language uh, yeah. in and of itself. So even though you're working on electric cars... And yep. there's this guy, Elon Musk. You decide not to go to his electric car place. You're going to go to SpaceX. How did that yep. happen? And, you know, all along the way, are you keep getting like poached to these places or are you deciding like, hey, three years is a good journey. I'm off to the next thing. Yeah, I guess to wrap up kind of the lucid story, we had hired the chief engineer of the Model S, Peter Rawlinson, who is now the CEO of the company and started pivoting the business towards what lucid is today. Mm. And raised, I believe it was two hundred million dollars at that point. Chump change. I kind yeah. Of, yeah, I kind of felt that it was the appropriate time to figure out what I wanted to do next. And at the same time, I wanted to move back to Los Angeles, having grown up in Los Angeles. Yeah, you sort of long for the slightly warmer weather. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. Yeah, <laughs> and just to be close to family as well. And so, so wanting to move to LA, and then having actually at the, around the same time, SpaceX reached out to me through LinkedIn and they were like, Hey, do you want to put people on Mars? Uh, yeah, I guess you can't really say no to that. Right. We have such a good sales pitch. It's awesome. So it wasn't so much that I was actively searching. I was just a little bit lost and the opportunity to work on the next great American spaceship was something that you can't say no to. I think, I mean, just all the language you get to use, for having worked on a spaceship, like the next great American spaceship. That's like a Tom Hanks movie. That's like a very good set of words to be able to put together. Yeah. And I think it's very common for little boys and girls to want to become astronauts. Did you have, when you were younger, did you have a relationship with the space program emotionally before you joined? 
Uh, as a kid, I grew up watching Star Trek and everything about Star Trek I was in love with. Not like the fanciful aliens or whatnot, but but the society that they projected. Yeah. Now that I'm running a company, I actually think about what has impacted the way I lead. And I'd say uh, uh, Captain Picard. Uh, I was going to say that. <laughs> Clue number two, Captain Picard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Captain Picard. And just the way he leads his crew, there was something about that combined with that version of society that I really wanted to be a part of or aspire to help build. Yeah. So electric vehicles, spaceships, that's directly from that. Yeah. Uh, but I got a taste of the aerospace industry when I worked at Honeywell as an intern in college. I spent a summer working on the cooling system for the International Space Station. Wow. So in, in 2004, I worked at Honeywell and designed or, or designed a procedure to fix one of the components on the space station. And that was that was really exciting, but didn't really follow. I didn't really follow up on that because I think internship. Uh, you know, that kind yeah, of it was just an internship and, and wanted to be a professor at the time. But when I started work at SpaceX, I was like, oh, man, I did some like pretty cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. What dumb thing have you done? Like you've only done cool things. Like, yeah, like cooling for the space station, then electric trucks that are now like funded by Winnebago. Then we're going to go to Taipei and we're going to make electric cars. Yeah. And now we're going to space. So far, so good. No, I, the dumb thing that I did was start a company right out of school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. Today's episode of the Logger Podcast is brought to you by us, Logger. The Logger Podcast people are talking about Logger. Go figure. If you made it this far into the episode, that means you're interested in hardware, which means you're probably interested in Logger. So go give it a look. Loggerdata.com. L-A-G-E-R-D-A-T-A.com. XOXO. We love you. Bye. So SpaceX. Yeah, it was just super exciting. My older sister was also a Star Trek fan, and so she was Mm. even more excited than me. It was just an exciting place to be when SpaceX was still unproven. Yeah. The level of confidence that people might have had it very different then. And even Elon as a person, I think, was still like minor tech celebrity. He'd be like a Bill Gurley or somebody like that versus like he's dating Grimes. I feel like the crossover into some other uh, plane of existence. Um, The the thing I was to say about your sister is when you work in technology, it's so rare that your friends and family can understand what you're doing and be excited about it. But everybody can get excited about a spaceship for the most part. So it's such a nice accessibility bridge for um, connecting with people on the stuff that you do. I'm going to dig in with you here on SpaceX. Sure. It's one of a very small number of companies that people would pretty universally be excited to work at or learn more about or understand more about. And there are so few places that are actually tackling big, hard things successfully. And it is interesting that under Elon, there's there's multiple companies doing that. I'm curious about the culture there and even how you get onboarded into that culture. Like one, how intense is it? And how do they bring you into that fold? Yeah, the culture there is is at least... Culture changes over time uh, as sure. the company grows. And I think when I joined, it was around 2,000-ish people or maybe 3,000. And by the time I left in, in 2019, it was closer to 8,000. But the culture there was very much ownership. You start your, your role and then this is your task and there's very little guidance and you just go. Yeah. And my first project was actually the Dragon, the Crew Dragon or Dragon 2 uh, battery system. And there were just a few cartoony blocks of what the batteries would be. And they were like, go. <laughs> yeah. And and so 
I think a lot of people who grew up in a very structured environment, that would be really scary. But for me, it was like, this is amazing. Yeah. I have almost a blank check to design a cool new battery system. And so the culture there was really about giving you the responsibility and it's sort of sink or swim. And so that's good and bad depending on your personality type, right? Sure. Um, I got three things about that. One is yeah. in addition to the cartoon blobs, were there specifications or goals or metrics or is it literally as broad as make a cool battery system? How do they sort of gauge that success for you? I mean, there were definitely requirements that you had to meet, but finding out what those requirements are wasn't always, it wasn't always easy. And <laughs> they wouldn't yeah. necessarily tell you who you needed to go find to, to get certain pieces of information. Uh, but I think that's true of any job. And so there were certain specifications that we had to meet and, and then those changed over time. And so of course, yeah. really, I think the magic that SpaceX has in their process is that they have a system or a group of people that can adapt to changes very quickly. Mm. And when you're designing something so complex, the real success is the organism or the company, the, the system, the culture in place to really build whatever is needed as things change over time. Mm. No one sits around and designs everything and then it gets made and it works, right? That's not how the yeah. real world works. No. And and so the success, I think, of SpaceX is really due to the, the company or the culture that they've built where everything adapts quickly. It's sort of like the Borg uh, to reference yeah. Star Trek in that new people come on, they get assimilated, but they adapt. You can build a really effective organization that way. There's a new hole now. Are there one or two elements of the organizational system that you think are especially good at creating that kind of environment or encouraging those kinds of people to stay? I think it's just really the flat culture and, and the no fuss. It's always the best idea that wins out no matter who brings it up, right? Yeah. So as long as you're willing to fight for what you believe in and it has merit, people will listen to you. And so that is really key to having the best idea rise to the top. Yeah. 99 out of 100 uh, CEOs is going to say that that's what we're flat and we do. Best idea wins. It's I think of it as very aspirational. Yeah. Um, very few places actually do it. Would you attribute it purely to people selection or is there anything else that you think that makes it more possible at a place like SpaceX? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely the mission helps. No financial services company is going to be like, we're going to be the best. It's hard yeah. to motivate. Derivatives. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're like, we're going to put people on Mars, that's the long-term vision. It really yeah. focuses the energies or the decision-making. I attribute it to a combination of the mission and how the company was built. Yeah. That's rare to have. Uh, a real mission. A real yeah. mission. I'm always asking people what the, the startups they work at say, especially when they, right before they get acquired, I'm like, what did they say to you the day before they got acquired? What is this mission rah-rah language? Because it's always very abstract and I'm usually not terribly impressed by it, but you know, we're putting somebody on Mars is obviously fantastic. Does that ever get used in like, um, I don't, don't want to say like a threatening way, but like, a, hey, look, we're here to put people on Mars, either show up or don't? Or is it always inspirational? Like, oh, look at the stars. Um, It's kind of in between. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, you walk into the, the offices and you see pictures of Mars terraformed. Yeah. It, it's not just what we say or what we do. It's like everywhere in the company. And when I, when I first joined in 2014, uh, someone showed me cartoons of the rockets landing. And I chuckled to myself. That's decades away. 
And then yeah. within a year and a half, two years, rockets were landing. We crashed a couple, but rockets were landing. Yeah. Right. Wow. And so yeah. I kind of threw away my doubt after that. I guess the other thing would be that they embrace failure, right? Yeah. There was a super cut of all the rockets crashing into boats released on YouTube by SpaceX. Yeah. And celebrating failure because because that's when you learn the most. That's great. Um, what would you say like the average per like what would your like weekly hours worked be like <laughs> as part of like such a you know, you were imagining decades, it's two years. Did you work two decades in two years? It really depends on the season. If your project is super hot, you could be, you know, 100 hours. Yeah. Uh, but if if there are things you're waiting on, you could be there for 100 hours helping your friend. It was yeah. really, it felt like all hands on deck, but there was no one dictating at SpaceX, you need to work that many hours. It was just a place yeah. where you, at least for me, I was so inspired. I was pretty excited to just go into the office every day. And the fact that we had food, you know, prepared, I think it was like $3 a meal or something, $5 a meal. Yeah. But but it was just, I didn't have to worry about anything except building space technology, right? Yeah. So I would lend extra cycles to help talk about other really interesting problems at SpaceX. So you, did you end up like running the battery team or what was your relation? Is, is yeah. And what are like the team dynamics there too? Are they broken into little teams? Yeah, any, any company changes over time. I was not the manager of the battery team. That's actually one of my good friends, but- any large company is going to have little clicks. Yes. And after I left SpaceX, I'd taken the startup mentality of building kind of a small team culture and brought it mm-hmm. to at least the battery team. Yeah. And we thrived. We were a service organization and we delivered batteries to the different vehicle groups. But really, really building a culture where we enjoyed work, had fun, we would go drinking together all the time. I actually stopped drinking because of SpaceX. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) yeah that's a good reason and we built a little protective bubble around the battery team of seven engineers plus the support folks and it was a pretty great place to thrive me and the rest of the team loved going into work every day and everybody was in charge of their own projects so me and uh, another guy we were in charge of dragon 2 and then we had the falcon the rocket team and then we had a satellite battery folks and so within our battery team we had people on different projects but information was cross-pollinated we would help each other out sure and built that camaraderie together do you think that like bubble or thing was like noticed internally and would help you get other people or is it something you only noticed in retrospect i i think it was definitely noticed we were part of a, a larger bubble that was the power team or people in charge of solar arrays and batteries and uh, electronics associated with the power systems but i i think in order to survive hard times or difficult tasks People naturally team up. It's that misery loves company when things are tough. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> when things are tough, you lean on each other and, and help each other through the tough times, and it builds really, really strong bonds. And so I think this happens at SpaceX regularly. You have these bubbles of people who are very, very uh, linked. Yeah, they get bonded together by all that heat of all that work. And it seems like, I mean, I've, I've had it happen with friendships with like road trips. You go on a rough road trip and then by the end, you're either friends for life or you're, you're it's over. Um, and uh, I think that you just get bonded by these things and probably remember them for a really long time. Yeah. Like when you see the videos of those, of any kind of like NASA launch or anything, like you'll just see people like crying and they're so happy. And you're like, clearly a lot of them went into that. Yeah. Um, and so you get this sort of shared expression of that work that is pretty special. So. You left, you were there five years. Yeah. How do you make a decision 
to leave a place like that where the mission is so big, where you're clearly making an impact, you've got this bubble where you're working alongside people you really like, where do you even start to get that that thought? When does it first enter your head? And and then how do you begin to act on it? Um, I kind of view life as a series of like four to five year adventures. Great. <laughs> so the period between 2014 and 2019 of SpaceX was some of the most exciting. I think there were 76-ish rocket launches. Wow. The car that we sent to space had the employees' names etched into the car too. And so I felt like by the end of the five years, I had lived an entire aerospace engineer's career. Mm. And I remember building one of the batteries, the last batteries that I saw built, and I was not learning anymore. I think that that was really the key. Sure. I always love to jump into things that I don't understand. And so I felt like I had proven that I could design aerospace-grade technology, uh, which was something I walked into SpaceX really uncertain about. Like, I had doubts. I was like, can I even survive here? Is any of my knowledge useful? Yeah. Uh, By the time I left, I was like, yes, I contributed on to the next adventure. That was always the case. I mean, that's pretty great. Like, if you're not learning that much anymore and your name is etched on a car in space, (laughs) I mean, what more are you you looking for at this point? A question about the... Business problems versus engineering problems. Um, At SpaceX, do you think that it was some of that early? I'm I'm trying to understand how the business problems factored into your work as part of the battery group. Was that stuff that you just had to put on the shelf or is it stuff that was relevant? It was um, relevant because when when you join a company that's as large as SpaceX was when I joined, the business stuff is no longer external facing, but it's still, there's still business stuff. There's still resources to get and people's opinions to, you know, sway. All of those Mm. skills were useful in operating within a larger, much larger organization. Yeah. And then I have, you had a lot of pride about Harvey Mudd. And I I think that certain schools can stay with you and kind of become part of your identity. Um, And it's the same thing with certain organizations. I know people who worked at Apple for a long time feel that way. Um, when you see like launches that go on afterwards where maybe your batteries won't be involved, do you still have like a really strong sense of identity and pride around SpaceX? Do you think that you're like a, a lifer alum now, or is it something that is more behind um, you? You know, I'm, I'm about a year and a half out. And so I still say the word we, uh, uh, I believe there's a launch yeah. in a few days and I said, we're launching. And, and, and so it's, I think I'm an, a lifer alum. I, it will always be a part of my life. Those years were amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely like four to five years is about how long you spend in college and the bonds you build there. Are, I would say that I've made friends that are lifelong friends at SpaceX. I'm a SpaceX alum for life. Nice. And you're getting that tattoo. You told me you're going to get a neck <laughs> tattoo. Right, right. <laughs> uh, let's jump into leadership style, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, and uh, the Picard thing has really thrown me because I'm like, that makes that's starting to make a lot of sense for me. You're now starting your own company. You've seen startups, you've seen international companies, you've seen companies where nap time is allowed, you've seen like high performance cultures. Um, to me, the nap time concept is almost the antithesis in a way of the hundred hour forged by fire concept. Do you think there is some balance between them two? Or you also mentioned the word seasons. Like, is it a seasonal thing where sometimes it's A and sometimes it's B? I'm trying to understand like whether you can really do something great 
at less than a hundred hours a week? <laughs> That's sort of my, my question. Um, if you have a great mission and the work is exciting, the hundred hours doesn't feel like a hundred hours at all. It's, it's just like, I'm going to work today. Right. Yeah. I think great work can be done. It doesn't have to be a hundred hours. It's not, it's not about the time commitment. I think if you need a nap to work at your best for the rest of the afternoon, you should definitely take a nap. Go put your head down on your desk and take yeah, a nap, right? Yeah. It's about being inspired. It's about doing your best work. And so whatever the inputs, whatever you need to do to be excited about what you're working on, I want to facilitate. And in general, there's a strong mm. correlation between excitement for your work and the quality of your work, right? Yeah. To me, it's not about time commitment. To me, it's about motivation and, and excitement and attitude, really. Um, Tyler said a similar thing about Apple. The mission is the secret ingredient. Like if you don't have a true mission, it's impossible to get anything else because people aren't going to believe in the purpose of the effort. Right. It's like, why am I doing this? So I've been trying to get your leadership style figured out a little bit because I, I have had opportunity to see you as a CEO, interact with your co-founders, interact with employees, interact with other folks, interact with people that that I've worked with. And I haven't quite been able to pin it down. It's I know it's very unique. The Picard thing helps. Definitely, there's a warmth and a humility that I'm sort of spotting. But I'm wondering, as somebody who's pretty analytical and engineering-minded and looked at maybe business problems in that way, do you have any insight <laughs> into like your leadership style and like what the main components um, are? Yeah, I would... I'm 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 not a very self-reflective person, but I've been forced mm -hmm. to, to think about these things. Nice. <laughs> um, I'm going to bring it back to the Chinese school or the after-school program that I was. I was an employee there. Yeah. I was teaching kindergartners when I was in fourth grade. I remember this. But wow. being able to get a group of kids excited about something is no different as an adult. You got to figure out what excites yeah. the people that you're interacting with and extract the best out of them so that they can continue to learn. Mm. My thesis is that when people are learning, their brain is working and it's exciting and most people get excited about continuous improvement, right? So that's the yeah. key to getting people to do exciting things, I think, is to show them that they can learn something by doing a task. But my leadership style, the emotional intelligence and the empathy, that was all developed when I was trying to teach kids how do I put my headspace in the body of an eight-year-old trying to learn something new, right? Yeah. When you try to educate someone, you have to think and put yourself in their shoes, right? And so, so that's where I was trained to, to do this. And it feels fairly natural yeah. now. But I, but I didn't realize that this was a secret weapon in the engineering world. I just thought everybody knew how to do that. And I, I don't think that's true anymore, right? I guess the another word that you're making service for me is like a patience <laughs> in the way you go about things. Which again, I like the Picard connection between like a humility, a patience, and empathy um, is pretty strong. Your mom um, and maybe both your parents sound like she was quite entrepreneurial with the fish and chip shop and the store. Is there anything in the way she managed things that you think you inherited or, yeah, or learned yeah. from? My dad also started his own business, his import export business. Uh, but my mom, it wasn't so much that she specifically taught me anything, but I remember at the end of the day between like five o'clock when classes were done and six 30, when parents were picking up their kids, I would watch, I would sit there bored watching her interact with parents. And some parents are crazy because you know, you're not teaching their kids the right thing or in the right way. And some parents were a little passive and they didn't care. And just watching, watching that interaction every day for most of my life 
I think that's where the patience comes from. You realize the wide spectrum of people that exist in this world. And the only way you can manage is to filter out and stay emotionally grounded so that you can really dig down and pull out the essence of what they're trying to tell you. Wow. Um, when you think about applying this leadership style to your new company, mm-hmm. having seen the variety of organizations that you have seen, separate from being proud of the output of what you do, is there something about the organization that you're hoping to be proud of in this next, like, I know CEOs should have a longer journey, but let's just think about the next four to five years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so- My view is developing the people. I want to make sure people are learning. And I will view myself as a success, regardless of what happens to the company, if my employees go on to start other companies and have an impact on the world. That would be incredibly, incredibly exciting for me. Especially in this day and age, there aren't that many lifers. People don't live at a company for long anymore, right? They'll sort of pass through a company and stay there for four or five years. And I want to make sure that the four or five years that I get out of everyone is the best. And if they want to stay after that, great. But if they want to move on, I want to support them and what they want to do next and, and hopefully build something more exciting than what I'm building right now. Yeah. From that perspective, that's how I view having an impact on this world is not about just what you do, but what you help other people, what you enable other people to do. That's fantastic. There's a, I can't remember her name right now, but she created the Netflix initial culture doc. And she said she wanted Netflix to be a great place to be from. And so if you're there, you know, SpaceX is that way, but like, if you're there, it's like, oh, you worked there. You must be fantastic to just bring us home and bring us back to Star Trek. What have you learned from Picard? And maybe even have you seen the the, the series Picard that just came out last year or this year? I have. I have. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to bring it to a different... So so I also watched Voyager. I kind of grew up in the transition okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. between Next Generation and Voyager. Uh, there was an episode in Voyager where somehow it was set in the future and only the hologram survived. And they were telling a version of history or th- whatever was recorded in that civilization's history was a drastic, drastic misinterpretation of what Voyager actually was. Sure. They were telling the story of how Starfleet was this warmongering organization, and that just wasn't true. And that episode, I remember thinking, you can really misinterpret history or what people say so easily when you don't have all the information. Yeah. So when I hear crazy stories or when things go wrong at work or when someone, when someone performs poorly at work, I think about that person and there's probably other things going on in their life if they were an excellent employee in the past, but there's probably other influences. There might be stuff happening at home or, or in society that kind of affects them. That episode, I remember really teaching me perspective and, and you don't have all the information. You shouldn't try to construct the story until, you know, you see repeated issues. But, but other than that, you know, how that affects me is, is I think about being a little more patient and a little more understanding of people. Yeah, that's great. What a good, I didn't think you were going to have such a good one. I put you on the spot. Um, so, well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's It's been a pleasure. I don't normally talk about myself like this, so uh, I'm excited. Do, do you know what my favorite part is, Benson? Was Is that all of this stuff is badass, but what you're about to do is even more fucking badass, and they don't even know. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody so that's knows. coming up next. That's V2. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. Yeah.